kind of laugh that I should start with something that's a little humorous. So right out of the gate, I want to tell you a story. At some funerals, the pastor has to work really hard to say something good about the person who's died. And For instance, there were two brothers of bad reputation in the Midwest, and one of them died, and the other brother came to the pastor, and he said, everyone knows my brother Bill, what kind of man he was. He was a cheat, a drunk, a scoundrel, a bum, and if you can say anything good about my brother, I'll make a sizable donation to your church. Well, the pastor knew it was indeed a challenge, and so he began the funeral, and he said, Bill has departed this life. And you all know the kind of man he was. He was a cheat, a drunk, a scoundrel, and a bum. But next to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) I would tell you, there's nothing good that you can say about false teachers. Not one thing. In fact, Peter, in some of the harshest words in the New Testament, he alerts us to these scoundrels about their incredible character flaws, these false teachers. And so he gives us in this scripture a provocative dose of reality. And I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And you're going to see this incredible thing as Peter <laughs> fires both barrels in this text today. And it's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. If you don't have a Bible and you want to look through the sermons we go through, it's in 1019 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible... We'd love you to have that as our gift to you. Here it comes, folks. Listen to this. Bold and willful, they, these false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You may be seated. Do you ever wonder how a pastor feels when he stands up and he's just read a passage like that? 
Well, let me let you into my heart and my mind for a second. Number one, I can see how some pastors say, you know what, that's just too serious. That's just too tough. I don't want to talk about those things when I stand up in front of people. I want to talk about the inspirational things. I want to talk about the happy, happy things. And when people come to church and they bring a friend, we don't want them to ever say, oh, what's going on here? You're talking about these kinds of things. Let's bring them to Disneyland Sunday mornings. And that's, lot, that's what a lot of people do who stand up where I am. But there's a second thing inside of me. It's my conscience. It's my call. And texts like these remind me every Sunday. And for instance, this text is found right here that is in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And all Scripture, therefore, is then profitable for teaching. So that no matter what it is, high inspirational, low kind of dark shadows of, of text, it's all good for teaching. And then Paul says to the church, In Acts chapter 20 and verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so I have this commitment. When I open a book and I go from cover to cover in a book, I'm going to take the easy and the, and the inspirational along with the more difficult and the dark, and I'm not going to pick and choose what it says because I know that God has a message in all of the Scripture when we go through and deal with it. Does that make sense? Well, that's where I come from. Well, we all know what recalls are about. A number of years ago, there was a national recall of beef. The USDA saw something they didn't like, and they recalled 143 million pounds of beef. Probably made Chick-fil-A a little happy, you know, all those beef commercials and everything. But it affected Erie. And so we, we took our meat back, and, we, and I don't know if it affected you here in Canfield or not, but the USDA takes that pretty seriously so that we don't get tainted food in our system. But what about tainted doctrine? Who regulates that? How is that spotted? How dangerous is tainted doctrine to our spiritual health? And who does the recall? Well, as you know, we're in a little book called Second Peter. Peter has a number of issues he wants to bring before the church. And you'll remember the first issue he brought before the church was true Christian character. How do you get true Christian character? Well, first of all, you have to find Christ as your Savior. You need faith. And then he says you add seven qualities to that. And if you'll do that on a constant basis, then you will grow into true Christian character. And that's the first half of the chapter 1. And then he goes to the second issue in the second half of chapter 1. And he says, how did the Bible get here? Did it come through human means? And he says, no. The Bible came supernaturally. God spoke through men what he wanted us to know. And then last week that third issue comes up. It's the issue of false teachers in the church and tainted doctrine. And of all the issues that Peter deals with in the book, he gives this one most billing. 36% of his little book is given over to This matter of false teaching. And he sees this as very, very important. And I think I know one reason why. Do you remember when the Lord forgave him in John 21 after he had denied him three times? And the Lord said to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my flock. And I think Peter, one of his takeaways was not only to teach the word of God well, but he took away no wolf is going to get in among God's people under my watch. And so he began to guard the church against the wolves that were coming in. 
So last week, we looked at verses 1 through 10, some characteristics of these false teachers and their coming judgment. And the great news at the end of that segment was that God knows how to rescue the godly from false teachers and from trials. And that was a major takeaway from last week. And so we might be thinking, okay, Peter, how about coming to the fourth issue? Peter says, not so fast. I have more to say about issue number three. It's as though, well, sometimes like me, I've got something I've got to talk about. I've got to process it. And maybe my wife or a close friend of mine said, you know, I think I've heard enough. Said, no, 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 I need a little bit more time on this. Would you listen up while I talk about it? And that's kind of where Peter is today as he's talking about. In fact, when you read Peter... He has no real structure. He's unloading both barrels, and it's almost a rant that you're looking at. So I've organized his insights to drive home the point that I think is in this passage in verses 10 through 22. And here's the big idea. Tainted teaching is the product of tainted character. Tainted teaching is the product of tainted character. There's something wrong in the heart of these false teachers. And so they begin to fabricate things next to the liking of their heart, and it comes out wrong and error, and that tainted heart produces tainted teaching. And so today, we're going to see what it looks like when teachers go off the deep end. And here are four character flaws that Peter says we need to understand. Character flaw number one. False teachers refuse to come under anyone's authority. They think they're autonomous, they're bold, they're willful. They will not come under anybody's word and answer to them. In fact, in verse 10, Peter says they are so bold and willful, not only do they come out from under human authority, they are willing to revile supernatural authority, revile spirit beings, Now, if you look at verse 10, the Greek word there, glorious ones, also found that very same word in Jude 8. It's a hard word to understand. What does that mean, the glorious ones? I checked out a few versions of the Bible this week, and they're all in the same kind of ballpark. Some translate it supernatural beings, some celestial beings, some angelic majesties. And it looks to me, as I look at Jude as well, to get some help in this understanding, is that what we have here are these supernatural beings who fell, Satan and his angels, especially Jude weighs in on this. And Jude and Peter Peter are teaching these matters in verse 11, that God, who has his angels, who are mightier than the angels of Satan, are not willing to step out from under authority and revile those angelic majesties, those glorious ones. They simply won't do it. They recognize that's God's job to do, and they are going to honor their authority. But not so these false teachers. These false teachers will not come under anybody's authority, and if they want to get out to reviling and accusing and knocking down authorities, even from the earth into the heavenlies, they're going to do exactly that. And what's more, verse 12 says, these who will not come under authority, who will revile angelic majesties, are like irrational animals. They're crazy. They don't understand that when they think they've got special knowledge, it is stupidity. And so he lashes out against them because they think they're knowledgeable in areas they are so ignorant on, and they will not come under anyone's authority. And so false teachers... Mock authority that is not theirs. They want to be in control. But look what Peter says in verse 12. 
They are like wild animals who will be hunted and destroyed. And their destruction is coming. And the harm they brought on other people, like a boomerang, will come back on them. Let me apply this for a moment to Old North. Now understand that this is pretty extreme in Second Peter. But extremities come from little beginnings. And so it's very important that our preachers and teachers here at Old North are accountable to authority. That they are under authorities. And what are those authorities that every pastor and teacher at Old North needs to be under and accountable to? Well, first of all, accountable to God. Secondly, accountable to the Word of God. Thirdly, accountable to the elders. And fourthly, accountable to this church. And here is the point. If we hear flaky things going on, you just don't sit back. Somebody has to step up. And I'm glad at this church they will. And so it's very, very important to understand that to the extent that any preacher and teacher resists authority and they come into question, that is the extent we have a problem that has to be dealt with. And so here at Old North, we watch that very, very carefully. So, character flaw number one, they refuse to come under any authority. But he moves on to a second character flaw. Number two, false teachers are predatory. Now, you might wonder what predatory means. Basically, it means to hurtfully exploit others for personal gain. And he highlights this. These guys are extremely predatory. They just don't teach error. They are after something from the people that follow them. And they've got them in their crosshairs. And Peter is talking about two areas especially that usually run amok with these false teachers as they exploit and are predators against those who follow them. And this is like revisiting the first part of chapter 2. He's coming at it again because he says, you've got to understand the stakes. So the first area of interest that they are predatory on is their sexual interests. And what Peter talks about in these verses is actually going on in the church over 2,000 years ago. And you have to scratch your head and say, how in the world did they get away with that? And yet they were, and Peter had to speak to the issue here. And so he says in verse, 14, or verse 13, these false teachers would go out into the community and go to places they shouldn't be in and indulge themselves in sin by day. And then they come some other place by night or at some other point in the day and show up, guess where? At church. Peter says they're feasts. Jude says, Jude says they're love feasts. And so here's the church gathered. I don't know if it was a potluck or something like that, but they were at a feast. And the feast would culminate in communion. And what Paul says and Jude says, that some people in the church, along with these false teachers, not only would eat their share of stuff, but they would get drunk while they do it. And in the middle of all that, start to be predators on the unsuspecting. They came with an agenda. And what is that agenda? Look at verse 14. It says, They were looking at the women in the church with lustful thoughts. And Peter says in verse 18 that that fixation was there. It wouldn't go away on sensual passions. So when they hung out in the church, who were they looking for? Peter says, I've got the targets in verse 14. He says, When they come, to prey on people in the church, they're looking for, verse 14, the unsteady. The unsteady. They know 
who they are because they've got two basically characteristics. If you want to know who the unsteady are, here are two ways to find out. Number one, the unsteady are brand new converts to the faith. They have not been grounded. They have not matured yet, so they're open to all kinds of things, and they could fall prey to any kind of teaching that might sound a little bit in the ballpark and still be wrong. They are unsteady until they become grounded. The second kind of unsteady people that there are are the emotionally wounded and struggling in the church. There are a lot of people with pain, and sometimes with pain you can't see your way through to clarity, and they would come along and prey on these people. And verse 18 says they would come to these unsteady people, and these were people trying to come out of their former lifestyles of sensual lifestyle, and these false teachers would take advantage of them, draw them right back from where they came, and basically get in bed with them. This was the extent to which they were willing to go, these predators. And so Peter says in verse 18, here are these, here are these unsteady Christians who are being taken advantage of, and Peter is so angry. You see, false teachers are smooth, and Peter goes back to his fishing days when in verse 14 he says, they will entice the unsteady. That word entice means, it's a fishing word, to catch or seduce with bait on a hook or a net. And so he would say, they're going to be there like fishermen to reel you in and have you for lunch. But he says there's another thing they're interested in. Not just the sensual. They are interested in their followers' money. They've got financial interest. And they know that they can fleece the flock. In fact, in verse 14, Peter says they've trained their hearts in greed. That word trained in Greek is where we get the English word gymnasium. And so in their greed, they practiced and conditioned that fine art of their ability to fleece people's money. And verse 15 says, they have left the way of truth. When they are interested in money, they've left the true teachings of the New Testament and its spirit. And he calls it the way of Balaam. They've forsaken what is right for the way of Balaam. Now what is the way of Balaam? Let me tell you what the way of Balaam is. It is ministering in the name of God for personal gain. And so where they were up there representing God and they were trying to take the money from the people as they ministered. Now Balaam is an interesting character in the Old Testament. You bump into him mainly in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And he was a non-Jewish prophet hired by a pagan king, Balak, to curse Israel. And for a while it seemed that Balaam was going to participate with God and not curse Israel. But we learn from the New Testament that finally Balaam capitulated. And he caved in for the money of the pagan king. He wanted financial gain more than his relationship with God. Now Peter says something that is really arresting here. And I want you to see this because it's very unusual. And what we're going to see reminds me from an old hymn that we used to sing. One of the lines was, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And you're going to see here in verse 16 that God did move in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Because what did he do? He confronted Balaam with a talking donkey. Now how do you like that one for an interesting way? And by the way, 
when it says that this talking donkey rebuked and, uh, rebuked and restrained the prophet's madness, that word madness means that he got away from right thinking. He went crazy somehow. A fitting description by, a description, by the way, for false teachers. Now, you might be thinking, come on, Al, a talking donkey. Uh-huh. Does sound like Disneyland. Well, hang on with me a second here as I go through this. First of all, Peter believed it was a talking donkey. And secondly, the scriptures under inspiration never give us one clue that we're supposed to take it in any other way than an actual talking donkey. And I actually believe this happened historically. I have a friend by the name of Ralph, and he's on staff at a Christian camp. And he had a parrot named Paco until a weasel got it in the camp. I felt bad for Paco. But I actually got to meet Paco, and I, I had some conversations with Paco. I think you know where I'm headed with this. <laughs> this parrot could, it was incredible. He could carry on a conversation with you, and he said things like, Hello, what? I want a cracker. Shut up, for starters. And then he'd call out the names of the staff. And he would imitate the intonation or the, the tone of voice as though they were talking. And then he would sing opera. He would make cat calls. He imitated people's prayers. And he would warn strangers by saying, Paco bites, Paco bites. This parrot could talk. Well, I got to thinking. If a bird could talk and Jesus said the rocks could cry out, praises to God if people won't, what would be the stretch for God to have a donkey talk to a prophet to restrain? At least he would get his attention, wouldn't he? So Peter is warning us that God is so upset about this kind of thing that he'll resort to any means he can, including a talking donkey to get our attention, to tell us that false prophets out there are after your money. Now, have any of you ever seen this going on on television? Have you? With these people out there trying to reel in your money through any kind of thing they possibly can. I was over in Israel and I saw a guy filming and he was saying about send your money and you'll get my cloth here. I just dipped it in the pool of Bethesda. And all these, you know, all these, they're taking your money. And they're rich, living exorbitant lives on the loss of your dollars. False prophets and teachers prey on their followers, and they abuse their leadership privileges, and many lives have been ruined, and we don't want yours to be one of them. But here's character flaw number three. False teachers are licentious. What does licentious mean? Licentious means lacking legal or moral restraints. And look where Peter is heading from this, uh, on this flaw. They're teaching that false teachers live a lifestyle that go totally counter to the holy and moral commandments of the scriptures. And they are advocating to their followers, you can be, eat, drink, and be merry, be happy. You don't have to follow the scriptures. Just have a good time. Just indulge your passions. It'll be okay before God. And Peter is saying how wrong that is. The freedom to indulge the appetites of the passions is not freedom. And so he gives this arresting twist in verse 19. The freedom they are talking about, Peter says, is really what? Bondage. Really slavery. 
and they are not free at all in their passions. They have become slaves to their passions, and their base nature is dictating their lives. They are addicts without restraint. And it's very interesting, the word that Peter uses in verse 19. He says they are slaves. Now go back to verse 1 of the very first chapter when Peter says of himself, Simeon Peter, an apostle and a slave of Christ. The very same word. Do you know something? There's not a single person who's ever lived that's truly free unto themselves. They're a slave of something. They're a slave to a desire, a passion, an addiction or something. Or they're a slave to God, to Christ. But none of us is truly free. And Peter is saying these false teachers are slaves to sin. I'm a slave to Christ. Where do you want to be enslaved? Well, as far as I'm concerned, I want to spend my life trying to become more and more a slave of Christ and less and less a slave of the things that would pull me in on this world. And he's saying the false teachers have lost the battle. They are enslaved. And so he says in verse 19, this powerful proverb, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So do whatever you want to, as much as you want to, you'll be free. Uh Uh-uh. Peter says, that is false. You will actually become a slave. And you will think, oh, I can stop at any time. Uh Uh-uh. You won't be able to. But the good news, the good news, the good news is that Jesus Christ came to break the slavery of sin that we have through his death, resurrection, and the gospel message is that we become free through slavery in Christ. Is there an amen somewhere? This is what he's saying. These false teachers will only kill you into slavery. And he says, have none of it because actually their freedom is the pathway to bondage and a train wreck. Well, now we come to the last flaw, character flaw number four. False teachers of the type of which we're talking about here, Peter says, are deceived about their salvation. Okay, one thing I've learned about Old North is that you're pretty well versed in the Bible. And so follow along. This is a little complicated as I go through this part and this teaching about this flaw, that they are really lost, that they're really unsaved, these false teachers. By all appearances, Peter says, these false teachers look like Christians. They look like they have a lot of knowledge, and they come across as so winsome that you're liable to believe that not only are they a Christian, but they make sense. But he's very clear. These false teachers have a track record of abusing power and people, and they live for the excesses of the flesh. And he says, you need to know the truth about these guys. They aren't saved. They don't have a part in the future kingdom of God. And numerous times in this chapter, chapter 2, verses 1, 3, 10, 12, 14, 17, and 20, Peter says that harsh judgment awaits them. They're lost. And he gets to verse 14. He says, not only are they lost, they're accursed. Whoa, Peter. He's really on them. Now, I want to focus a little bit, though, on the last three verses here in chapter 2. Verse 20. Peter says, early on, it looked like they had escaped the defilements of the world. Early on, they'd come to know Christ. But he says, that condition is no longer true of them. They may appear religious, but they don't share in the gospel. They are not saved as they appear. In fact, Peter says, they're worse off than before they came to know Christ. 
Peter says in verse 21 that it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn away from the holy commandment. Why are they worse off? Two reasons. Number one, they're probably totally blind by now. They'll never see their need to repent. And number two, the harshest of judgments is now coming. It wouldn't have been so harsh early on, but now they're getting both barrels. And then Peter cites a hopeless proverb in verse 22. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, the pig, after washing herself, after taking a bath, returns to wallow in the mire. These false teachers go back to what they were, their original condition. They were lost. They're unregenerate. And had Peter not told us, we might not have ever known. Now, do you see the theological problem that's before us? I know what some of you are thinking. Are you saying they were once saved and now they're lost? Well, there are two viewpoints, at least on that. Number one, some will say, well, they really never were saved at all. They made a false profession of faith and sounded like they were. And then over time, they revealed themselves for their true colors. They were never saved. The others will say, yeah, they, they were saved one time, but they got so bad, they lost their salvation. Guess what I'm not going to do for you today? <laughs> I'm not going to solve that problem. Were they saved or lost? One saved and now. That's something for you. But I want to show you the outcome. Peter says no matter how they got there, right now they're lost. They're reprobate. They're under judgment. They are not saved and we need to take Peter's word for it. No matter how they got to that condition, their character flaw is they are lost and you need to run away from them like the Dickens. And so there's the teaching on false teachers. Peter is saying basically they are reality in the church. And they are not authentic Christians, only in name. They are coming under certain judgment like the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, those things that we talked about last week. And you need to get out of their way. And so let me close this false teaching, the, the false teachers and their teaching, with three tips for you, okay? Because I think it's so important. Number one, tip number one, please don't dismiss the teaching on false teachers as irrelevant because I know what you can be thinking. Hey, We've never seen anything this flaky. We've never seen anything this bad. And so, what's all the hype? Probably won't happen around here. And you may be right, and thank God if it doesn't. But, do you think a false teacher would come in full-blown? No, not at all. They come in little at a time. It's like a flat tire. Most of the time, it's a slow leak. It's not a quick blowout. And the same thing kind of happens here. They come in, you don't recognize and everything. In the course of my 40 years of ministry, I've seen a number of people come in kind of by stealth and start to teach things that have unsettled the church and unsettled marriages, and I can tell you all kinds of stories. It's not the full-blown flower that can hurt a church always. It's this beginning that you don't notice. So this isn't irrelevant. Number two, and I really want you to get this one, okay? Be careful of witch hunts. What am I talking about? Well, within the church of Christ, there are a number of doctrinal positions and interpretations about things that have been around for hundreds of years. And they are within the pale of orthodoxy. And they are things like this. Um, premillennialism versus amillennialism. 
predestination versus free will. Eternal security versus loss of salvation. And we've been back and forth on this for centuries by the best theologians, and they have different kinds of opinions on that. And the takeaway here is, if somebody has a different viewpoint in the church about one of those things, it does not make them a false teacher. It just makes it that we've got a different point of view on something that's historic, theologically okay within the pale of orthodoxy. So we don't want to come after, gunning after people just because they take a different position on something that's been around historically for a long time and can be supported either way from the New Testament. However, if there are people who rise up in the church who move from the clear, historic embodiment of the New Testament teaching then those leaders need to be confronted. And sometimes if they're outside a local church and they're on the airways, not only should they be called out, but they should be named to protect the people of God. And sometimes that has to happen. And here's the third one and the final tip. Please, please, please be sure you are being rooted and built up in Christ and grounded in the faith. Why? Because if you're not you will be unsteady. If you aren't grounded in the faith, you're a sitting duck for false teachers. And so I am pleading with you, grow in Christ. Learn the scriptures. Get powers of discernment and understand that when there is true teaching from the word of God, it has a major result, and that is godliness. False teaching moves you in other directions. And so my plea for you today, and that's what we've been doing all year, Growing up together. Because when we are strong in our faith, false teachers have a hard time making their way through. So, I ask you a few questions as I close. Would you pay attention to learning the Bible for yourself? Don't let it collect dust on a shelf. Would you pay attention when you're at church to the teaching ministry from the stage and the teaching ministry in the classrooms? That's there to help build you up in the faith. And when you hear the platform teaching and the classroom teaching, would you become like the Bereans who would go home and consider what they heard to find out whether or not it squared with the word of God? It is so important. And so Paul said to Timothy, words that apply to us, pay attention to the teachings of the scriptures. Become absorbed in them, and then you'll not only grow to spiritual maturity, you'll ensure your salvation as well, and that's a luxury the false teachers do not have. And so would you bow your heads with me as I pray and close this part of Second Peter. Father, I pray that your spirit would have gone before me in these words as I proclaim the text today to an open heart, to realize the danger of false teachers in the world today. They have not gone away in 20 centuries. They're probably even out there more than they were back then, but they found other ways that they use radio and television, satellite, and all these kinds of ways to influence people in wrong directions. And God, I pray that you put a hedge of protection around this church and that we'd be able to recognize true teaching, recognize error, and take appropriate action wherever it might be needed. And I, I pray, Lord, for any who might be kind of unsteady today, that they're in pain or they're ungrounded in the Scriptures, that you would just give them a heart resolute to become steady and sure on their feet spiritually so they would never be taken advantage of. And so, God, I praise you for the frankness of your Word and the power that it has in our lives. 
And all God's people said, Amen.